Welcome back to Shouting, Shouting from, from the, the kitchen. kitchen. Yeah, today I'm very excited um, because this is an episode we just thought of. So I'm not going to say it's been in the works for a long time because it has not. Just thought of as if you didn't do like a lot of research on it. Um, but yeah, it's a more recently conceived idea. It is, but that doesn't mean it isn't valid and very, very exciting. And I am excited. Um, but anyway, yesterday we watched this really amazing documentary that's been on both of our lists for a while. Uh, we watched Paris is Burning, mm-hmm. um, which was really, really amazing and very, very sad and uh, just really hit hard. But it was a really good documentary. Um, it was required for my anthropology class, uh, so I had to watch it. But then we just ended up watching it together with one of our roommates as well. Um, and it was really, really good. It was amazing. Just like the the beauty of watching it as a movie, like the way it was filmed was so pretty. And the transitions as, like I loved all the block letters. That was just something that I was like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, it was really unapologetically queer, mm-hmm. which I think is like, it was in its filmmaking inherently. It was filmed by um, a queer woman queer white woman so that's kind of problematic because it is about the queer black and brown communities that you know faced a lot of racism as well so they didn't that nuance was picked up in the film but it's like who's filming it anyway who's I digress. Making, who's making the money from it benefiting from it exactly so and on. that's a problem with it apparently is that not a lot of people were compensated for their time and energy that was spent like talking about their lives and that's not too great um anyway it was really good though really interesting and really unapologetically queer which was something i had never like seen before and i didn't know much about the ballroom culture uh in new york city in the 90s because you know i wasn't there (laughs) um really i know i know unfortunately i'm not a time traveler um or immortal but yeah it was really good though it was amazing and i love that like you had to watch it for your course but it became this thing that we could just do as roommates together and we kind of debriefed it afterwards and like one of the things that Asina was looking into after was also all the people from the film who sadly passed um, especially a few of them and a good majority of them from the um, AIDS epidemic and crisis and just considering that context and being able to sit with that together. Yeah, it was really devastating because, you know, all of these people, such vibrant, like loving, caring, just incredible, like people and personalities. Um, And then I went to look them all up because that's what I do because I'm my age and have a phone. Anyway, so I looked them all up and it's just, you know, Wikipedia after Wikipedia, like they passed in 2009, 2006 from, you know, uh, like a complication that was related to AIDS. And it's devastating because it's a reminder of how much of the queer community was lost to this epidemic and just so many queer elders that are lost um, and that, you know, will never get to contribute and will never be heard. And I think that like this isn't what we're talking about for the episode um but it's just a story for us to tell some of the experience we've had together recently um and i think it does in a lot of ways relate to what we're talking about today 
Mm-hmm. Um, today we're talking about gender performance and behaviors related to gender. Specifically, we're going to talk about body hair. Um, and I think this is a good time to transition into our land acknowledgement time. Um, I've said this kind of every episode. This is something that we are intentionally making contextual. It's something we're changing every time, not just repeating. So for today, since we are talking about gender performance, we wanted to kind of highlight how colonization in specifically our context in the Turtle Island Canadian context part of colonization was the imposition of gender hierarchies and not just gender hierarchies but gender roles in the gender binary Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of indigenous communities as we've recognized recognized genders beyond just male and female and recognized gender along a spectrum of both identity and expression and part of the harm of colonization was creating and imposing the binary um, specifically the gender binary but the binary of sexuality and um, heteronormativity So as we get into this episode on gender performance, like always, we acknowledge that as we're recording on the UBC Vancouver campus, we are recording on unceded and unsettled uh, Musqueam territory, um, territory that has been the Musqueams, that continues to be the Musqueams, um, and this acknowledgement is just a part of our work on this land. Shall we begin? We shall. Okay, lovely. So before we get started talking about body hair, I wanted to do a bit like of a rundown of how we can look at it and perspectives we can take, particularly feminist ones. Yeah, so I wanted to bring up Judith Butler, Slay. Um, Butler looked at like Simone de Beauvoir's idea that one becomes a woman, and in one of their articles, writings, I don't remember which one, they spoke on how gender is not a stable identity, but is actually instituted in time from stylized repetition of acts and is instituted through body. And what this all means is that we perform gender and we establish gender as a series of norms. Like, for example, long hair, like keeping my hair long is a norm to establish that I am female, and it actually does not belong to any gender, but it is something we have established as a performance of femininity. Um, And we don't realize we're performing. Uh, We perform so well and so often that the performance disappears altogether, and we believe we are not doing anything. And RuPaul said something like, like, I perform drag, but we all use drag every day. And in the documentary we watched, they spoke on, like, executive realness. And that was one category that people performed in where they, like, dressed as CEOs. And that's drag. Like, CEOs show up to work in drag and in performance. And that is what we're talking about when we talk about gender performance. It's this, like, costume we all put on that somehow became the norm. We've memorized our scripts so well that we don't even realize we're reading them. Oh, they, uh... Yeah, exactly. That's such a slay. I love that so much. Thank you. <laughs> oh my God, stole the show. Musical <laughs> play. Anyway, yeah. So Butler stresses the idea that we can redo gender and we can break away from it um, by just 
changing the norms. Um, so like shaving, not shaving is an example. We can kind of tie shaving back to false consciousness as well that we spoke on earlier in our cosmetic surgery episode in that like, do women actually have a choice? Is, um, you know, the decisions that we make are the decisions that we make inflicted upon us? Anyway, we're just looking at norms and how we perceive norms and how they're inflicted upon us. Yeah, and I think it's just important to outline at the beginning of the episode that the norms we're looking at when we talk about a norm as being a norm for women and and when we talk about a norm as being a norm for men along like that gender binary these aren't things that we are saying are traits of men or traits of women we are saying these are characteristics that people have taken on because of these scripts and because of kind of who we've been told men are, who we've been told women are, who we've been told people beyond the gender binary are. There's scripts for every kind of performance of gender we have. Um, And that's just what we want to look at specifically in the context of body hair. Exactly. Thank you. No, you're exactly right. Like uh, they are things that are learned about gender, not innate. Um, So we wanted to do a brief history of body hair uh, and how body hair has been treated. Uh, And by brief history, we're starting 100,000 years ago. So brief. I know. Um, So, yeah, basically, we can start at the very beginning with the removal of body hair in the Stone Age. Basically, cavemen did remove hair, but this was for practical reasons beyond gender. Uh, It was used to prevent frostbites We don't really, like, I don't really know why. Like, I'm guessing that's because ice would, like, stick to hair, and then that Mm. would make you extra cold and, like, shiver. But I don't really know. I'm doing my science credit in archaeology this term. If I find that out (laughs) for any reason. I the answer. I was like, damn. No, we did, like, talk about a guy who was, like, frozen in ice. His name is Otzi, if you want to look into him. him. Yeah. But I don't have any information on why. (laughs) That's okay. Thank you, though. And let me know. Please update. I will update Um, the whole pod. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So it was to prevent frostbites, prevent lice, uh, infections, stuff like that, just kind of for ease beyond gender. That's the main point. Um, And then? Then in ancient Egypt, so around 3000 BC, we are... Skipping a little bit of time there. A little. Just a little. Um, There were kind of strict regiments around kind of hygiene in terms of bathing and body hair removal. Um, And that was primarily because of the heat. um, And that it was believed that having body hair even at that time was a... identifier of being uncivilized Um, what we have written down is cleopatra can be attributed to the creation of this body standard yeah which is actually kind of late in egyptian history to be honest like she was the last one so really making a bang before she left Mm -hmm. um but that's super interesting and the uncivilized bit kind of makes me think that is it because of these like prior ideas of like shaving for survival? So it's like if you don't shave, mm. you're not like being 
like productive or thinking about your life and you're uncivilized i don't know but that is interesting that potential connection and how cleopatra really fucked us over with that one so i love you i love you cleo but come on um yeah so then the romans around 400 bc like the egyptians uh viewed body hair as a class issue um so the amount of body hair was kind of proportional to your status in society um but this norm was only applied to women and so that's where the deviation kind of happens where it's like only women were applied to this and then in the article that i'm using as a reference for this they also speak on like an evidence like evidence of this being portraits and statues which i found kind of interesting because in portraits like i can't speak for portraits roman portraits but in statues I'm pretty sure everyone's hairless. Like, I feel like just adding hair to statues takes so much time. Like, why would that be? Like, shout out to Roman sculptors if they were out here, you know, adding a little lines. Kind of love it. Good for them, but also not good for them because they didn't <laughs> do it for women. So fuck you for that. Um, and then getting into what we perceive as like more. Modern y times. Um, the first Queen Elizabeth in the 1500s, um, she believed that the hair on your face must be groomed. And this is specifically around women. Um, and that included all the hair on your face. And so eyebrows needed to be shaped. Um, and the hair on your forehead and on your upper lip also needed to be removed. Um, at that point, hair on your body didn't matter um, in her context. Um, it was more about hair on your face. And I think that's an interesting thing to think about in the context of how much less hair women tend to make on their face and why like that was seen as something that needed to go entirely yeah it's just that like creation of gender norms and like the the division of men and women um as these two separate entities um and that establishment because god forbid there's anything in between um and then so moving on about you know 400 years (laughs) (laughs) um before 1915 most women like in the United States, and I can generalize and say North America, uh, did not remove any of their body hair. Um, and there was no, like, societal or, like, capitalistic pressure to do so. Um, but then we had, between 1915 and 1919, the Great Underarm Campaign. Dun, dun, dun. Exactly. So thank you a lot. Uh, Gillette for producing this but they basically created a razor for women um, and they made a bunch of ads and the ads told women that you know if you're wearing like sleeveless shirts or dresses or whatever you can or you have to remove all of your underarm hair uh, because any hair that wasn't on your head was like unwanted ugly and unfashionable love how this has not really changed capitalism it really is it was 
Gillette seeing another thing they could produce mm-hmm. that they could market specifically to women by, as we've talked about before, making women feel by, by making women feel like they're like uncomfortable. Wrong. Yes. Oh my god. Oh my god. Um, but yeah, they made women feel uncomfortable. Like that's marketing, and it's horrible. It kind of reminds me how. Um, during the suffragette movement, a lot of cigarettes were marketed towards women as like this really feminist thing that you should do because it was such a masculine thing to do up until then. So it was like, OK, if you do this, you're a feminist. And it's like, go fuck yourself. Like that's kind of uh, like pride being capitalized on. It's kind of, in my mind, a reincarnation of that. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, and we should talk about the first wave of feminism in relation to this if we want. Yeah, I definitely think so. So when we talk about first wave feminism, um, we are talking mainly in the context of the United States. Like that's where we generally see the suffragettes get really big, I guess. Um, Again, this is a movement mainly almost entirely driven by white women mainly by white women who were extremely racist and believed that they deserved rights because they saw black men um, in the United States getting a few rights, mainly the right to vote, and they were like, why don't we have this? Um, So yeah, they did not come at their feminism from very intersectional or, I'm going to say, ethical stances. But anyways their ideas on body hair. Um, We can make an educated guess that the suffragettes weren't super cool with body hair. I wasn't able to find much in my brief little research on this. Um, But they were like pro-prohibition, pro-eugenics, pro-the-traditional wife, stays home and cooks and cleans and takes care of her man. So I'm guessing... Uh, you know, making an educated guess that they wouldn't have been super duper cool with your body hair just being out and flowing and free. Um, so that's just kind of my educated guess, seeing as they were like kind of not great people often that just happened to be in a movement that we agree with now. And I think that it ties into like when we're talking about being hairless as a gender norm, then liberation from that gender norm is having hair and not shaving Um, and the suffragettes really weren't into liberation they just wanted to kind of be equal to men in some way men in some way and it wasn't it wasn't radical either Um, not the way it was in the 70s what happened in the 70s in the 70s body hair became more intertwined with feminism and it um it was a lot there was a lot of anger because there was a lot of porn that didn't have pubic hair for girls which was linked to you know infantilizing women and equating them as young um and children uh in a sort of way to see women as fragile and delicate so it was this idea of hair is necessary um in that it shows the difference between the young and the old and the elimination of body hair is part of the infantilization and the um, sexualization of women. Yeah, and I think that here when body hair was taken on as a form of liberation, it was very 70s. 
like in yes. the in the best way to describe it the 70s was a time of like social norms being rebelled against for the sake of protest um like people changed how they looked people changed how they acted people changed like who they hung out with all to be deemed as socially unacceptable in a way um in a form of protest and since the gender norm for women at the time which still continues today was being hairless having hair was that form of social in excess yeah it was like breaking norms Mm -hmm. yeah and it's really cool i appreciate it a lot and i wish it you know kept a little stronger um but here we are today and so that's kind of the rundown of the history of it we have it until the 70s i would say now there's differing opinions on it whereas the 70s might have been more absolute and like all body hair should be accepted and like shaving is conforming to gender rules. Now there's a bit of more interest in hearing both sides. Like you can shave your body hair and be happy with that. You can not shave your body hair and also be happy with that. I would say there is a way higher interest in shaving. There is more norms around shaving, but there is still that like in feminist circles, at least that like interest in um, everyone kind of pursuing their own thing. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I think it's unique today as well, the varied forms of shaving and like body hair removal there are. I think shaving now has become a lot more about kind of capital and what you're being sold instead of just a form of hair removal. For women, it's like not just you have to shave your legs, it's you can shave your legs, you can laser your legs, you can wax your legs, you can blah, 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 blah. There are all these different forms of ways for women mainly to spend more money on making themselves look more feminine or look more like the social perception of a woman. Yeah, they're they're forming womanhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting because as long as we conform to this idea, we will be feeding into the capitalist system that like takes us apart. Um, so as much as I have complicated relationships with shaving, um, because I do shave occasionally, and it's like how where do we draw the line between comfort and societal comfort? Anyway, um, and I think that does draw back to a more intersectional lens because my uh, experience with body hair might be different than your experience with body hair because our body hair might look very different Mm -hmm. and be treated differently. And so I think we should bring up an intersectional lens um, just because so often we have this conversation about body hair and people champion body hair, but it's always white women or at least a significant like voices that are amplified are always white women. Um, So I want to talk about some brown women and some black women who have talked about this. Um, So yeah, when I talk about an intersectional lens, I want to bring up this quote in particular, which is from the article, Hairy and Proud, Body Hair Removal Through a Feminist Lens from Feminism India uh, by Joyshil Shriva Stava. And she speaks on 
the pressure to remove body hair. And for women of color, it's an attempt to assimilate into white culture. Uh, for instance, in Iran, being hairless is a status symbol that expresses that you are more, quote, modern or Western. Um, so again, it's this idea of like feeding into the colonial idea of what a woman should be. Um, and that's like one common motivation or like underlying motivation to shave. Yeah, and I think this goes all the way back to the beginning when you brought up the kind of free will perspective. Who are the people who are most targeted by media and companies, especially like body hair removal companies, to remove their hair? And why are they most targeted? Yeah. It's because we have these standards that are different depending on race, depending on cultural background, depending on like what color your hair is. Yeah. I I have blondish hair and I do not have as much pressure to shave put on me from the society we're in. No, absolutely. I have, uh, on my arms it's a little lighter, um, but everywhere else it's a dark, thick black. Um, so when my legs get hairy, they get hairy. Um, and it's interesting because I've had different relationships with my body hair throughout time. Um, but I want to, before I dive into my own experience, um, I want to bring up Tazneem Kakal, a feminist that fights for reproductive justice, who notes that in India, waxing is a sacred ritual that starts as young as 12. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just, I have a few vivid memories about body hair. Um, I remember being like grade five, grade six, grade five. Oh, just knocked into the mic. Grade five, and like I was a little hairy. There was a little hairy moment going on. And I remember vividly this other kid in my class would like, not would like, he once um, pointed at my like upper lip and was like, yeah, Asina has a mustache and like no one else can grow a mustache like Asina. And I was like, oh, oh I'm going to cry. <laughs> and then after that, I waxed my upper lip. I was like mm. fucking, I don't know how old. Anyway, so that's kind of the point of like that indoctrination, both by, you know, your the people around you who say, OK, maybe now's the time to start waxing. And the people outside of your immediate you know, circle that are like your hair looks weird. Um, and then, like, going on, it's just constant after that, you know, like, I know that waxing is really important. Shaving is seen as this kind of thing you never do, especially to your face, because there's this, like, uh, myth that if you shave your face, the hair will grow back thicker. That's false, but it does color a lot of people's opinions on shaving. And I know that waxing was always the go-to in the, the circles I was in. Um, and I will say it's interesting because my body hair would often get pointed out like kindly by people like by white friends as like oh you should probably shave because your underarms are a little hairy and it was like done with kindness mm -hmm. because the world sucks it was also that example of like oh you're not you're breaking a norm like you should watch out you're breaking a norm right now and it's not like I was always kind of like, fuck the system. Like, I don't mm -hmm. really care. And it just it took to various levels to like get to that point where I really did not care. Um, but it's just that like 
that unconscious bias that we have and we all have it like I will look at my hair and be uncomfortable and just because I have it and I'm trying to embrace it doesn't mean there's that innate uh, uncomfortability that I have that's been so ingrained in me Um, and so I just wanted to bring up those few examples in how waxing is treated hair is treated and how we can try to treat it going forward but it's like I still shave my underarms like out of comfort and legs when I'm like going out and wearing shorts or whatever and it's that like urge to still perform even though I know like in deeply that I don't need to or well you don't want to I don't want to that's a better word yeah and I think it's it's hard because all those like people who have reinforced those norms They're not creating those norms, but by being concerned about it and by bringing it up, they're reinforcing that hair on women and hair on non-men is a bad thing. Absolutely. And it's, it's problematic not just because it forces you to change something about you that happens naturally and that has kind of natural biological just occurrence for our biological needs Um, but it's something that people have deemed is bad but not for everyone just for women and and especially so for certain women Mm -hmm. Um, no absolutely I agree Um, we are both like survivors of this culture and these norms and also perpetuators yeah did I say that right I think you did. Okay, I I just said it with confidence. No, I I really like that because when we talk about the norms that are pushed onto us, even, I mean, norms for, like, there are gender norms around hair for men. Like, men are expected to be able to grow facial hair at some point in their life. Men who go bald, it's, it's seen as a bad thing in lots of places. Those are very different examples because they're not things men have to change about themselves they're just expectations Um, but like the gender norms that we have in our society they're all forced upon us and we are the ones who continue to force them onto other people by manifesting them like every time we choose to make a comment about our own hair every time we choose to buy a new product every time there's a new like laser hair removal ad that comes out that's us imposing and continuing these norms yeah we are we are repeating the cycle and passing it along to others that will also pass it along and it's annoying because at the end of the day they are these practices are tied into larger structures so as much as we can try to break away from the norm how much we break away and how much other people break away is determined by these larger like capitalistic patriarchal colonial structures that still determine so much of our lives um so it's really fucking depressing Yeah, it's always going back to a question we continually go back to in conversations you and I just have, but also on the podcast, like who is benefiting? Who is benefiting from these norms? Because it's not women with hair. It is not women with darker hair. It is the people who own companies that 
do body hair removal. It is the people who are in the media and get to decide what is deemed as the right amount of hair. Like, the people who these norms are pushed upon are not the ones benefiting from them. No, and I just, I'm sorry, I just looked up the CEO of Gillette (laughs) just to see the man that's behind this all. Um, And obviously he wasn't in charge uh, when the original campaign happened because then he'd be fucking ancient. But fuck you, Gary Coombe. Asina just looked that up and I like only saw the side of her computer and I was like, why is this bald white man just (laughs) on Asina's computer? We're not going to shame his body hair or his hair. Um, But I can't who was a CEO. I'm not shaming. It's a fact. Yeah, that's true. He's just a, a bald white man. He's a bald white man. I could just say a white man, but that, that doesn't have as much pizzazz. No, it doesn't. Yeah, so fuck him. <laughs> and remember, whenever you pick up a Gillette razor, picture a white man with kind of like a mean face. <laughs> and remember... Your money goes to him. Your money goes to <laughs> He's him. profiting. Um, and that's I what I'm going to try to do every time I pick up, pick up a little razor. I love that. I think there's also, like we did this in our buccal fat removal podcast as well. The aim of this podcast is not to shame women for shaving. Both Asina and I are people who have removed body hair at some point in our lives. Both of us also rock our body hair a lot of the time. Um, But I think it's, again, just us questioning where do these norms come from? Why are these norms? Why do these norms still exist? Why are they pushed upon women? And why do they continue to evolve? Why do we create new forms of body hair removal, including like long-term body hair removal with things like uh, lasering, instead of just changing the norms of this society. Like, it's always a question of why why does this exist, not let's shame women who do shave. Oh, absolutely. Like, there's nuances to it. Like, I, I do shave my legs and my body when I, um, like, put on a bathing suit because the embarrassment of having hairy ass legs is like way too much. Um, and I think that's always the problem is like you can't shame women because we are tr- just trying to survive in these societies that uh, will shame us for our every move. Um, so we're out here surviving <laughs> and we can just try to thrive. <laughs> that's all we can do. With as much or as little body hair as you are comfortable with having on your own body which you should have full autonomy over yeah i wish i had taken a photo of my hairy leg to post (laughs) it on our instagram exactly because then people we would have gotten like hate comments it would have been so funny free promo i know boosting the algorithm question mark that's how it works i think that's how it works yeah yeah well like we always do we're gonna finish with a little quote Aw, Asina, can you read us our quote? I would be so happy to do it. I would be really, really happy to do it. And this quote is from uh, NBC News. <laughs> the article is, Shame for body hair growing up. Daisy women now challenging racist standards. And it's really cool. Anyway, uh, in her article, she notes that we are born into these cultures how do we want to unpack it and how do we eventually want to move forward inside of it? 
they give us all of this bias and shame. What can we do? And you're so right. There's so much bias and shame in the world, um, yep. but it's how we eventually move forward inside of it that matters. Slay. Beautiful. Well, thank you. And I want to say thank you for listening. Thanks for being here with us. We love you. We hope you give us a little review. Um, Follow Shouting from the Kitchen on Instagram. Yes. Send um, us an email. Absolutely. Shouting from the Kitchen at gmail.com. Um, yeah. We'll see you next episode. And thank you to Avon for the music you are about to hear. Thank you. Bye, Bye guys.